Hello, and welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. And, uh, you know, I'm going to try to get on Spotify, too. If it's good enough for Joe Rogan, it's good enough for me. (laughs) So uh, welcome to the show. This week, we are going to be discussing matters of faith. And uh, I have a wonderful and special guest on this week. And let me tell you a little bit about him, because you kind of need to know the backstory on this one in order for our conversation to be fully contextualized. Let's put it that way. Um, Dr. Tim Sledge is my guest this week. Now, he is a former Southern Baptist minister, a speaker, and writer from West Texas who began his ministry education at age 16. He graduated from Wheaton College and then earned a Master of Divinity and Doctor of Ministry degrees from the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He didn't just run a little church in the veil. He took a very active role in building up his faith ministry. In fact, he is a prolific writer. He wrote training materials for youth and was the co-author of a year-long study on lifestyle evangelicism for Baptist men and a member of the writing team for the Youth Disciple Notebook, a Southern Baptist discipleship guidebook for teens. Now, he then moved to Houston, and as a senior minister, he wrote two books that launched a whole support group ministry that actually spread nationwide. Those books were Making Peace with Your Past and Moving Beyond Your Past. Then, at the peak of his ministerial career, Tim experienced a series of events that led to a decade-long process of realizing that faith was no longer working for him. In his book, Goodbye Jesus, he described this deconversion followed in 2018 by his, uh, what I believe his latest book, A Meta-Spiritual Handbook. And lest any of you think we're going into the foggy land of woo, let me give you a short quote from this book to set the stage for what we're going to talk about today. This is a direct quote from the book. Meta-spirituality, at least my version of it, is spirituality without God or magic. Spirituality that requires no religion or faith, spirituality based on a willingness to follow the truth wherever it leads, with courage, openness, and humility. Though not related to an invisible spirit world, meta-spirituality touches that part of us that yearns to be inspired and longs for a connection to something noble. Its aim is to stay in touch with the core of what makes us truly alive, that part of us that yearns for the highest and best in life. Don't think of metaspirituality as cold and disconnected. The opposite is true. Metaspirituality is a call to kindness, listening, vulnerability, compassion, and gratitude, a quest for a growing sensitivity to the world of emotions, and a challenge to let mistakes lead to growth instead of shame. Metaspirituality recognizes our need to be inspired, to breathe in that which enlivens us. I believe that through metaspirituality, the way forward can be meaningful, connective, and profoundly rewarding. And Tim has a website, which is a very, very difficult one to figure out. It's (laughs) timsledge.com. So if you want to check out his work, you can see it there. So first off, Tim, welcome to the show. 
Thanks, Chris. I'm glad to be here with you today. Awesome, man. I'm glad to have you here. I've uh, I've been following you on Twitter for a while. That's mostly how I've seen and become aware of you. And um, you are always compassionate, and you know you're not adversarial or trying to throw a lot of hate around you. You point out stuff that is is pretty good stuff to be pointing out in terms of compassionate reason. Well, thank you. That that means a lot. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, it's it's not common on Twitter. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> right. You know? um, Twitter it, is not not necessarily the place for positivity. <laughs> unfortunately, not. And I, I apparently I learned that's um, it wasn't always that way. But once politics got in and ideology started. Yeah. climbing the walls there. So let's talk about you. Uh, the thing I'm most curious about first is you were not just your, uh, I, from reading your bio and history and looking into the work that you have done, you're not just an average ordinary guy who got interested, you know, who had some faith ideas, thought it would be good to help people and join the ministry. You, you took a very active role. And like I said, you were quite prolific in writing materials and doing studies and working on trying to help people. Have you always just kind of thrown yourself all into it that way? Well, I, uh, I started off when I was in uh, elementary school, my Sunday school class in, in Snyder, Texas, gave me a, a Bible when the start of the school year occurred. And I, I noticed in the back it had a, it was called a plan by which you may read the entire scriptures in one year. Old Testament in the morning, New Testament at night. So I made a New Year's resolution a few months later. And when I was eight and then finishing up when I was nine years old, I read the whole Bible from cover to cover. Didn't really know what begat meant uh, <laughs> and, and a lot of other things, but uh, I, I, you know, I muddled through it. And during that year in the summer, like every Baptist church I've ever known, we had what's called vacation Bible school. And um, on Thursday, the next to the last day, the preacher always gets everybody in the auditorium and does an evangelistic sermon. And that's where I made my decision to commit my life to Jesus. Then, as you mentioned, uh, as you alluded to in your introduction, when I was 16, uh, I felt called to the ministry. And I began preaching literally two weeks later. And soon I was preaching almost every Sunday somewhere in not just Baptist churches, but Methodist, Assembly of God, interdenominational groups. And it all culminated in my senior year in high school in Odessa, Texas at Permian High, uh, when I organized a citywide youth rally. We rented the County Coliseum. We had everybody there. There were even Catholic nuns in the audience, but it was mainly teenagers. And at the end of the service, we had 50 teenagers who came forward. It was I was channeling my inner Billy Graham <laughs> and it was just like a miniature Billy Graham crusade for teenagers. And at the end, sure enough, 50 young people lined up across the front. And that night, I, I thought, you know, I might be the next Billy Graham. Humbly, I thought <laughs> I might be the next Billy Graham. So I was, uh, I was totally committed, totally sincere from those earliest years. Wow. I I can't help but wonder. I mean, that must have been such a heady feeling for you as a young adult to be able to generate that kind of enthusiasm yeah, it, power. Yeah, at first it was like just I was just this quiet kid. I mean, I I I uh had a few good friends. I wasn't popular. I just kind of kept to myself. 
And then almost overnight, once I started preaching, all kinds of things started happening. I was elected student body president at my high school. And the next thing I knew, I was leading the prayers at the football uh, games for the Permian Panthers. That's the Friday Night Lights team, by the way. And uh, they won their first cha state's championship uh, during my senior year, likely because of my prayers, I would say. Right, of course. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> not, not serious, not serious about that. Oh, of course. But, um, but, but yeah, I mean, my friends, if, if, uh, if one of my friends wanted to go somewhere, uh, one in particular, he had gotten in some trouble. So when he wanted to go somewhere, his mother would always say, well, where are you going? What are you going? When will you be home? Who, who are you going with? And if he said he's going with me, all the other questions vanished. I mean, that's just, I was a parent's dream in those years. And, but I really meant it. I was really trying to do the right thing. Awesome. Um, and, you know, and, and who can knock someone for doing that and for doing the po doing truly positive work? You know, mm -hmm. not it's not all bad and horrible and awful. Um, now, I'm a little torn. I want to jump to the I want to jump to the end and then go backwards sure. because I'm keenly interested in your deconversion. But I want to I want to make sure we're clear before we get into that you know, just how much work you were doing and how dedicated you were to this cause, because this was this was decades of work on your part. It was, and it culminated in my church in Houston, where I finally found myself in a place where there were all the ingredients to grow a church. And, and, it, and it happened. We uh, quadrupled in size in about 10 years. We were growing four times faster than the community in which we were located. And this included uh, the support group ministries that we started. And near the end, in a period of about three years, I had written three books. I was traveling all over the country, helping churches launch support groups and uh, going through a lot of things in my family at home. And, and uh, the church, of course, was still growing. We had a series of suicides during that time. We had a... Um, a, a high school teacher, a, a middle school coach, who um, stepped out on Interstate 10 in front of a truck and killed himself. And I did his funeral in front of 1,400 people, mainly teenagers, with 98% of the people there thinking he was a hero because he was everybody loved him. But in the second row, there was a young woman and her mother, and she was the one who had turned him in for having sex with her. And so the principal had called him in and said, uh, you know, this is what's happened. Apparently it had happened in another state. You're fired. He goes out and steps in front of a truck later that, that afternoon. And uh, so that, that was a very tough situation. And my policy on suicide funerals was to always try to comfort the family and everybody present. But I also felt it was really important to um, to make some allusion to what really happened, and I did that day. You know, I, I said something like, "Well, we know he was troubled. We know something was wrong, but we we know that he loved God, and we trust that he's with God today." Uh, I got a lot of criticism just for mentioning it because, again, the people thought he was a hero. I knew that wasn't true. I knew it was opposite of the truth, and. That was one of what I call the exceptions to the rule of faith, because one of your most dedicated members 
who has a great family, what you'd call a Christian family, Christian teenagers who are exemplary. This isn't supposed to happen because the church is supposed to be supernatural. And the new birth, which occurs when you give your life to Jesus, according to the understanding that I had of, of the Bible, it's being born again, regeneration, starting over. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And so that troubled me. And if it had only been, if it had been just that one thing, that would have been manageable. But by that time, I had, it was like in the early years, I started the little, little drawer in my desk, my mental desk, for these exceptions to the rule of faith. But then I had to get it a claw into a closet, and then I needed a room. And it just, and every time I'd always say, well, you know, um, when I get more education, when I have more, exper <clears throat> more experience, I'll be able to answer that question. I'll be able to figure it out. Or the ultimate, when I get to heaven, I'll have to ask God about that. So that's how I kept going. But I finally reached a point where that didn't work anymore. Hmm. How I'm I guess I'm a, I guess maybe I'm missing something or I missed something in the in the story there. How was it that this man was considered a hero? Um everybody knew that he had suicided, yeah. Well, a local TV station had run a story that that night or or the night that he died that a popular high a popular local uh school teacher coach had been helping somebody change a flat tire on the interstate and he got hit. So he was a good Samaritan in the eyes of the news media. He was always helping kids, talking to kids. He had written a letter to my associate pastor just um, shortly before his death. And, and he said, you know, we've got a serious drug problem here in the suburbs and we've got to do this and this and this, and we've just got to do something about it. But he was a man with a secret probably, you know, usually, probably he was molested when he was a child. I, I don't know. But something most likely in his early years set him on this path. And uh, I'm sure he was tormented inside. But the irony, one of the things the girl told me was that while he was in this inappropriate relationship, this sexually abusive relationship with a teenager, he was also trying to win her to faith in Jesus. And that's that's a lot to digest. Man, tell me about it. She was uh, Jewish, and so he was like, you know, here's who Jesus really is, and you need to give. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh because because it's it's so tragic, but it's it's like a kind of a nervous response to the the craziness of of what was happening. Absolutely, there's and it's commonly misunderstood on this channel that you know laughter is not always humor we're not always finding things funny when we're laughing at things that is a very definite stress reliever yeah uh, that has nothing to do with humor sometimes okay so the picture is clearer to me now and it's sad of course that you know you have somebody who's doing horrific things you want people to remember be remembered well but at the same time when they're doing things that vile you know, and the, and the, and to cover it up, that's not that's no good. That's no good at all. You know. Um, okay. Well, let's let's go. Let's let's talk about your youth ministries actually for a second, because because it was significant. I mean, the work you were doing was not small. Like you mentioned, you were traveling all around the country 
setting these things up. What was the impetus for that? In other words, what inspired you to start doing that? And, well, and, and what was it all about? The support groups were actually for adults. Um, and the way that I got started, I grew up with an alcoholic dad. Mm-hmm. A good man, a great father in many ways, but he was a binge alcoholic. And so our lives would be going really well. And then suddenly he goes on a one week binge and everything falls apart. So that I think that's part of why I read the Bible when I was eight and nine years old. I was really looking for something to hold on to. Mm. And uh, but, I, you know, I, I dealt with it. He got better by the end of his life. He was actually preaching at a rescue mission as a volunteer. So he he kind of. He, he never got to what we call recovery, like in a 12-step sense, but, but he did get better. Well, in the 80s, when I was at the church in Houston, I, um, I started noticing that there, there, was a, there were a lot of books coming out on adult children of alcoholics. And um, I started reading them. I was very interested in, in the topic. And when I, when I started reading them, I, I thought, oh, my gosh this is me. I do this. I think like this. And I just, you know, went along. And then in the spring of 1988, I decided I always tried to do sermon series that were relevant and kind of connected with people with the issues they were dealing with in life, whatever that, whatever was, you know, a current topic. And so I decided I would do a series of sermons on adult children of alcoholics. A cousin of mine who who had been an, a drug addict and an alcoholic and had gotten clean and sober, had done so by going to a place called the Meadows out in Wickenburg, Arizona. And uh, after he got back, he, he and I became very close after that. I went to see him while he was there and we'd been close as kids, but we had completely lost touch. But I was living in Arizona, 60 miles away. So I went to see him and we became like brothers after that. And he'd always say to me, Tim, the Meadows has a program for ministers where you can go and spend a week there and you just pay for your room and board. They don't charge you anything because they want ministers to learn about uh, alcoholism and, and they want ministers to refer people they know who need help to their facility. So whenever he'd say that through the years, I'd always say, well, thanks for telling me, but no thanks. And privately, I mean, I would think to myself, man, I am not an alcoholic. I, have, I sure don't need to go to a place and spend a week with alcoholics. But prior to this sermon series, I thought, man, that would be a great way to get some material for this sermon series. And so I signed up and uh, the week of my 40th birthday, I found myself at the Meadows in a group of about seven people and they started introducing themselves. Hello, my name is Joe. I'm a recovering alcoholic, drug addict. Hello, my name's Sue. I'm a recovering abuse victim, drug addict. Hello, my name's Jim. I'm a recovering uh, sexual abuser, alcoholic. As it got closer to me, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I need to get out of here. These people are really messed up. But I was always taught, don't be a quitter. So I didn't quit. And before the week was over, I think it was on Thursday, same day I went forward in vacation Bible school, by the way, I had this life-changing experience. I finally let go of all this emotional pain I've been carrying inside of me. It's like I've been keeping these balloons underwater all the time and juggling my, my efforts to make sure all these big balloons didn't pop up out of the water. 
and I just let go of them. And there was a tremendous amount of crying and emotion. And normally I wouldn't, I would not have been so vulnerable in front of, especially people I didn't know. But in those few days, I came to realize, yeah, these people are different. They've made different decisions. They have different problems. But I'm really not so different from them because the emotional aspects of who we are are connected to a disease called alcoholism. My life was never the same. And in fact, if I hadn't gone to the meadows, I, I don't know, I might still be a minister. But that was the thing that made me, because here's what happened. I went back, I preached the sermons, and oh my gosh, and I was honest, I'd actually been having panic attacks for several months. And I'd gone to a counselor and I couldn't get any help. And I stood up in the sermon series and I, I said, I've been having panic attacks. I made myself vulnerable. And as I talked about adult children issues and my own struggles, people started coming from everywhere to hear the sermons. The uh, Houston Chronicle put a, an interview with me on the front page of the lifestyle section. And as a result of that, even more people came from the other side of Houston, from other denominations. I decided, well, I wanna do, um, I wanna do a group kind of like the one I was in at the Meadows. So I, I said, on this night, this week, if you wanna be in a group, I'm looking for six people, come and sign up. We had enough people, about 60 people, and we started six groups instead of one. And each Sunday after the sermon, I would write a little guide for the people in the groups to use as, to kind of get ready for the next meeting. And that became the book, Making Peace with Your Past. And so over the next few years, that was in 88, year by year, our recovery ministry grew. We added more groups, more people came. And I started to notice something that was both exciting and troubling. If you walk by, we had a Sunday school a Bible study building with a hallway down the middle. And if you, and there was one place where on the right, this was our recovery Bible study, and on the left was just a, a regular adult Bible study. I, I walked by there one day, and I could see out of this peripheral vision on both sides. On the recovery group side, I saw people, and I turned and looked, and I saw people crying. I saw people hugging. I saw people with eyes locked in deep conversation. And on the other side, I saw it wasn't bad what I saw on the other side. There were people laughing. They were talking about the game that would be on TV that day or the time we're getting together that week. But there was obviously something a lot deeper going on on the recovery side. And I started to notice over the years that the people who went through this recovery ministry really changed. And these were people who had many times come from really tough problems, emotional problems and all sorts of things. So I started having this nagging feeling that I didn't really like to think about. These groups do more to help a person experience genuine change than Sunday school and walking the aisle and praying and all of that. And that was, that's why I said earlier, if I hadn't gone to the Meadows that week, I might still be there. I might still be in the ministry. I don't know. Would you say that that moment that you saw that was the first seed that was planted that led to your eventual deconversion? Not at all. Uh, my first church was in the suburbs of New York City. Mm -hmm. um, 
a lot of great things happened there. We turned it from, it was kind of, it was a Southern Baptist church in the suburbs of New York, if you can imagine that. So, but I, I, I said, well, I'm a shoe salesman and nobody here has any shoes. So I'm, I'm just in a great place to be. And we had some dramatic Christian conversions take place. A man whose wife had committed suicide came days after her death and became a leader in our church and really changed a, a rough, rugged bodybuilder guy who was from the Bronx and who, who told me one time that he used to steal uh, stereo equipment out of cars. He and his wife, right when their marriage was falling apart, came to make a decision for Christ. And, and, and they, they really had some significant change. But there was another fellow who came, and his name was uh, Dave, another dramatic conversion. He was down and out in financial trouble. And uh, I thought his story was going to be another success story. But I don't know, uh, maybe a couple of months after his decision, uh, my wife and I were on vacation in Texas. And I called one of the deacons to see how everything was going. And, and, he, and I said, well, how is everything? Oh, it's good. He said, uh, but uh, Dave robbed a bank. I said, what? Yeah, Dave robbed a bank. So Dave had gotten a fake toy gun, robbed a bank, got caught very quickly. And I made many visits to Dave in Sing Sing Prison. That's where the expression up the river comes from. It's an old, scary place. Well, gosh, if, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Uh, the old has passed away. All things have become new. Where does bank robbery fit into that? I don't think it does. So it was like one by one, there were these exceptions to the rule of faith. This isn't how it's supposed to happen, but you always go to like, well, Dave needed to be discipled more. He needed more Bible study. Or, uh, or maybe this person wasn't really sincere. Maybe they just went through the motions of making a commitment to Jesus. You always had a reason. But finally, after enough decades, my list of reasons book was getting kind of worn out and it wasn't working so well anymore because you finally say, you know, I've been calling these exceptions, but really, really a church as great as it may be. And I've seen churches do great things. And I think a lot of churches do help people, but really it's just, a, it's just another group of people. They've got maybe higher ideals. They're maybe trying harder. Maybe they're more committed. A lot of them give 10% of their income all the time. Um, but it's just a bunch of people. They bring their emotional pain and trauma from childhood. They bring their unresolved issues. They bring their secrets. It's all there, but they learn to pretend we're changed. We've got Jesus. And one of the most interesting things, Chris, when I started getting up and talking about recovery. And I, I went all over the country. And eventually, uh, my book was translated in South Korea and also in Peru. And everywhere I went, um, I found that Christians had been waiting for somebody to give them permission to say, I'm hurting. Because usually you're not supposed to say, you're not supposed to say anything that makes Jesus look bad or anything that make, makes it look like the church doesn't work. So these people, it's just real easy. I, I, I did it. I talked about my own struggles, and that was the thing that empowered them. Okay, he's a preacher. He's doing it. 
And he sang in these groups that we can go there and do it. And it was an outpouring. It was incredible. And so again, it was like, okay, well, you know, this is kind of what I expected uh, Christianity to work, to be like. In fact, this, these groups to me look like what I'd read about in the New Testament church. Hmm. Except that what made them work wasn't the prayer, wasn't the Bible verses that we read every day. It was the psychological principles of recovery of sitting down and being honest and letting other people help you. Exactly. I cannot help, of course, but immediately think of the similarities. I mean, there's vast chasms of difference between our backstories, between our back experiences. As I, I think you know, I was involved heavily with the Church of Scientology for many, many, well, for decades. Mm -hmm. And I was all in, just like you were all in. I was definitely the equivalent of a, you know, full-time, 24-7, you know, part of the ministry, you could say. Um, and that view that the thing I find common ground with you here on is this idea that you are supposed to be flawless. You're supposed to not have anything wrong, uh, you know, because you are part of this group. And mm -hmm. even though there's this whole self-help self sort of counseling component to Scientology, there's still this, this social veneer, the social front that mm -hmm. you have to put on when you're not experiencing any of that that you're perfect, that everything's great. Your life could never have been better. It's all smiles and joy and happiness. And I know- that, That's that's really interesting. And that is, that is a complete parallel to what I was just talking about. That's very interesting. Yeah, very much so. And it has yeah. to go along with, I think, this sort of group illusion that we all buy into when we get involved in these groups, whether it's Christianity or Islam or Scientology. And it doesn't even necessarily have to be religious, but religion tends to be where this- boy, it's really strong there. This idea that, you know, God is everything. Jesus is everything you need. He's supposed to fill all the holes. He's supposed to fill all the gaps. He's supposed to be everything that you are looking for and will solve all your problems. And these mantras, you know, they break down very, very quickly in the face of real life problems and trauma and situations. And you, and you found that, you know, by um, going to the meadows, like you said, I think that was a brilliant move. It's one of those like, paradigm shifting mind altering sort of experiences that you just never see coming until it happens you couldn't plan for it you couldn't right. premeditate it and once it happens you can't ever see the world the same way again exactly hey everyone i want to introduce you to a new sponsor for my show which I think is a vital service that especially now is something we might all want to avail ourselves of, and that is BetterHelp. If you are feeling anxious or sad or just want someone to talk to, who better than a licensed professional therapist? I know in the past there was some controversy with this, but that's been addressed, and I'm happy to endorse this service now. BetterHelp is a professional service which will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And you can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. There's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in your area. This is actually a worldwide service, not just here in the U.S., 
you can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions at your convenience instead of having to wait on theirs. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. I endorse this service, but check it out for yourself. Visit their website and read their testimonials. And if you sign up using my special URL, you'll get 10% off your first month. Look them up at betterhelp.com slash Chris Shelton. Pretty easy to remember, right? That's betterhelp.com slash Chris Shelton. Sign up today. And, and I think you're pointing out... Um... This is just a, th a theory. I don't really have research on this, but I, um, I've talked about the Christian faith as like being under a spell, mm -hmm. but you don't know it. You know, right. you, you, you feel like, oh, I'm deciding what I do. I'm in charge of my life and everything's good. And, but you're really under this spell. And, and the way you can see it, like I see it on Twitter every day when, and I don't know why, but Christians come and you probably experience the same thing they show up out of nowhere and they want to they want to duel with you yep and um uh but it's like nothing gets through it's it's like you know it can be so logical you're saying something just basically lot completely logical but it's like it just goes in one ear and out the other and that's that that spell but here's what i think happens for a lot of people something happens to you and for me uh and i and in some ways i don't i've written in detail about this in my book goodbye jesus i i it's kind of hard to talk about but so the thing that i haven't said today is that after 10 years i was forced out of my church by a small group of people oh and again the history was i'd led it to quadruple in size put us on the map nationally with their support group ministry. And uh, I remember one year we were, out of all the churches in North America, we were in the top 600 as far as our growth rate. We were in the top 200 as far as baptisms among about 40,000 churches in the Southern Baptist Convention. But what happened was um, political. Uh, when they fired me, I, I got a lawyer to look out for my own interest, uh, that seemed the prudent thing to do. And one of the things that that they did was they put in writing that there were no ethical or moral charges involved. That wasn't why they asked me to leave. They wouldn't say a reason. But I can tell you um, a few things that would help help you understand it. One of the mottos I started using was, we're a healing place for hurting people. I got wind of one of our members who said, hey, I'm not a hurting person and I don't like being identified with a healing place because I don't need any healing. Some people, there were three groups, the traditional people who thought the recovery ministry was great, they didn't go to it, but they thought it was great. And then the recovery people, and it was like a, a congregation within the congregation. But then there were the traditional people who were threatened by what we were doing in the recovery ministry. They didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to think about it. Jesus is enough. Jesus is all you need. And 
there were just, I mean, it was a, it was a crushing experience. It happened on a Wednesday night, a small group that said, people are unhappy with your leadership. And I thought, wow, we just gotten a thousand volunteers. We had a big Christmas drive-through program. We had a thousand volunteers and that was our weekly attendance then, a thousand or so. And I wow. thought, wow. And they said, there's been a crisis in your leadership. And I thought, wow, a crisis in my leadership. And we just got a thousand volunteers to put this thing on again. Um, so that night I got up and said a few words. And by that point, I wanted to go. I was exhausted. I was crushed. And I got up and said a few words. And when I finished, I got a standing ovation that lasted two or three minutes from 80% of the people there. And that's when I knew that I'd been tricked. Right. But by then, I decided I don't want to be a pastor anymore. I'm still a Christian. I'll still write. I'll still go and speak and help churches start uh, groups. But I'm done with this. That was in 1996. About five years later, um, there's so much detail, it's not appropriate to share here. But I, I did something that was totally uncharacteristic of me. Hmm. I left my marriage of 34 years. And um, I moved to another city in Texas, and several years later, uh, married someone else, started my life over. And at that point, I was still a Christian, and in Baptist life, if you've been divorced, you're, you're basically out of ministry. So I, 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 that's what I believed, and I thought, okay, I'm not a minister anymore, uh, but I do want to go to church. And so my new wife and I started looking for churches. We went everywhere, Baptist, non-denominational, charismatic, uh, Unitarian. We, we didn't go to a Scientology group. We didn't do that. But, 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 God but, avoided that one. <laughs> yeah, but uh, for me to go to a Unitarian church, that was pretty close. That was yeah, pretty close. yeah. So, but, you know, I just, it's hard to explain, but, and, and I went to one church where, I really liked the pastor. He was a former counselor. And so I talked to him and I told him my story. And I said, hey, I think I'm what you call a broken Christian. And I need to, the word they use in the church is restored. I need to be restored. I need help getting my spiritual life back where, where it used to be. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm really too busy to help you do that. But I have a, my associate will see you. So I went to see his associate and he was available for an hourly fee. And I tried, but that that didn't really work. And I, I just ended up one day after going to one more church, I said, um, and I reached out to several other places for help. And part of it was I was so highly visible. And for somebody like me to be broken, I think it really scared people. Mm -hmm. And they, they just wanted to keep their distance. But to me, I just felt isolated. I just felt, hey, now I need help. Now I need a group. Is anybody out there? Mm -hmm. And the answer was no. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I, one day I just said, you know what? It's too painful to keep going to church and hoping it's going to work. I'm not going to go anymore. And once I did that, the shackles started to come off of my, my brain. And I started thinking about, do I really believe that gay people choose to be gay? Because I had uh, some friends who had a, a son and a daughter. I'd known them since they were little kids. They, they both were gay. I, 
I knew they didn't decide to be to be gay. And so one of the first breaking points was, you know what? I think some people are born gay. I don't think it's a sin. And uh, I'm sorry, I know that's not what the Bible says, but I don't believe it. And then the next thing was, you know, I just have to I have to interject for a second because I don't think you know this, but that was literally the very first topic I took on also coming out of Scientology was that exact question because I yeah. ran into the same problem. Yeah. And the and the anti-LGBT propaganda in Scientology is intense. Yeah. yeah. It, you know, it's, it's Leviticus on steroids. So <laughs> uh, so it was uh, so it's just, again, it's just a funny parallel. I just had to I just had to comment on it. The, the next breaking point was, uh, okay, so the God who loves us more than anybody or anything else, yep. if we don't do what he says, is going to make people burn in hell forever. Mm-hmm. Thought about that for a while. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. So I got to a point where if I had wanted to stay in church, the next option would have been a liberal denomination, liberal mm-hmm. Christianity. But the way I looked at that was that uh, basically all those denominations are slowly dying. And and the reason is because they keep jettisoning jettisoning parts, key parts of faith. And and it's like, you know, this is like going down the steps in a basement. And pretty soon you're going to get to be to the bottom of the basement. There won't be anything there. Mm -hmm. It it seemed to me like... um, this is for people who have the sentimental desire to keep going to church, but are connected enough with modern thinking that they can't believe half or more of what the founders of their denomination started it based on. So right. that wasn't really an option. It took that process took um, um, from 2002 to about 2007. So that's. There were two stages, 1996 to 2002, and then 2002 stopped going to church or, or around that time, and then by 2007 is the, and I've had to kind of estimate it, but I called a friend of mine from high school. Uh, his name is Jay, and uh, he's, I tell about him in my book Goodbye Jesus. Well, Jay is Jewish, and actually he was an atheist even in high school. And I'd always witnessed him. We were friends. He was vice president of the student council. I was president. And we did a lot of things together. He was very patient with me. And I wasn't mean. You know, I was like more of a, my dad was a salesman. So I knew how to be kind of smooth about it and ease into it and look for those right moments. And so I called Jay around 2007. I said, let's have lunch. So we, we sat down. I said, Jay, <laughs> I don't believe in Jesus or God anymore. And you know the expression, somebody's jaw dropped? Well, his jaw <laughs> literally dropped. And uh, I don't, uh, and it, Jay's a great guy. I don't, I don't think he's gotten over it yet. Like, uh, I can't believe this happened to you, Tim. Well, I tell you, I mean, you were all in. I mean, you weren't just a little in. You were all in. I mean, a doctor of divinity, that's, that's nothing to, you know, to blink at. You, you definitely were committed. So I can see why the jaw drop happened. Ultimately. It was my own humanity, my own failure, bad decisions, getting to a place that, in retrospect, you know, I wasn't thinking. I think it was in a midlife crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was that brokenness that put me in a place where I needed so much. What I had been telling people my whole life was available. 
and it wasn't. There was silence. There was no one there. So. Do you think it's more common than not that deconversion is a long process like that? Because again, common ground here, mine, 10 years. I mean, if I actually honestly trace it back. Yeah, that'd be for the same for me, 10 years, yeah, yeah. 10 or 11. Do you, do you know, you I don't know the answer to that, Chris. Um, I, I'd like to learn more about it and I'm, I'm hoping someday to maybe do kind of a survey online about it. Um, I did find out the other day, right now I have about 7,000 followers on Twitter and I did a survey and you, you know, you only get a percentage of your followers to do anything, but of course. I had about 650 responses. And the question was, who knows about your unbelief? If, you, if you've left faith or you're leaving it, who knows about it? And there were three choices, uh, just me, just me and a few other people or everybody. And about 60% answered one or two, mm-hmm. um, which means that most of the people that I'm communicating with, as best I can tell on Twitter, are not out of the closet in regards to their unbelief. To me, that would be a supportive, uh, some supportive evidence of what you just said, because that says they're still in the process. Yep, exactly. It also we- said, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, we called it under the radar. Yeah. You know, and it, it also says, I think, you know, and I always, I preached a lot about the cost of commitment, the cost of Christianity. Mm-hmm. And uh, we need to be committed. We, we, our history is people who died for their faith. And, and I felt like I'm in the minority. Uh, sometimes I feel a little, uh, I'm not in the flow of mainstream society. I have different views. I I didn't understand that at all. I understand it now because, and these people that, you know, the fact that so many say, well, not everybody knows about it. It's because it's costly in many environments to identify yourself as an atheist, an agnostic, a free thinker, a humanist, uh, or just a a secular person. So I don't know the answer. Does it take most people a long time? If I had to guess, I would say yes. And I think the reason is, that it's like a little seed gets planted. I, a, a counselor I was seeing back when I was still a pastor gave me a book called Good Goats. It was written by some Catholics who wanted to convey a better image of God. And they tell a story. They say, you've got an uncle, you, your parents take him over there and he's the most loving uncle in the world. And he just hugs you and tells you you're great. And then he says, let me show you my basement. He takes you down to the basement and there's this big furnace. And you can see the flames leaping out of the furnace. And he says, if you don't love me back and you don't do what I say, I'm throwing you in that furnace. I put the book down and I didn't pick it up again for years because I knew it was true. But if I accepted what it was saying, I wasn't going to just have a better view of God. I was going to have to throw in the towel. I didn't want to do that. So I think there are probably a lot of those experiences where it's like you pick up a hot skillet and you drop it real fast because you didn't know it was hot. Mm-hmm. Um, and that keeps happening. But uh, somebody, I said that on Twitter the other day and somebody said, yeah, but what happens is the, the skillet cools each time you go back and pick it up again, pick it up again. And pretty soon it's, it's manageable. Yeah. So we're analogous to the frog in the boiling water. Yeah, true. 
I mean, we can condition ourselves to anything. That's very, very true, you know? Um, and we can do that, I think, basically because, you know, the simplicity of the human mind in terms of rationality is that belief, what we believe, trumps logic, facts, and reason 100% yep. of the time. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I used to sort of think when I first got out of Scientology and started getting into critical thinking and skepticism and reading Carl Sagan and getting involved in this community that that it maybe there were, there was some 50 50 split or maybe it was 2070 or, so, you know, whatever, you know, 60, 40. And now I'm kind of like, no, no, it's really not that. It's not that's <laughs> actually the wrong way to even look at it, you know, to to believe in our minds that there is a that there is this adversarial relationship between emotion and reason, they're actually the same thing. And that's what we haven't quite grasped yet, mm -hmm. I think. Um, interesting. So, okay, so you do, you know, you do grow up under these circumstances. You, you start all these support groups. They are doing good work. You're seeing they're doing good work. This whole thing collapses. It seems to me that you kind of, I guess maybe, again, I'll, I'll sort of assume a parallel here. Um, just have this like strong urge, like your whole life to just want to help people. Does that key is, do you think that's what keeps driving you now, even after having lost faith? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, yes. And I think, so I have to look back. So when I felt called to the ministry, it was a very spiritual experience. I felt God was, you know, speaking to me, leading me, but I now, but I now think that, uh, there, there's some things I was probably born with. Mm -hmm. And uh, if I if I think something, I like to talk to people about it. I like to convince people about it. I don't know. My dad was a salesman and he'd come home at, at, di at the dinner table. He'd talk about the, he was selling cars, at, for example, and he'd say, they were going to walk away. And then I said this, and then they said this. And so he, he would really, he was talking about sales strategy. And so that just sort of built into my, world but it's the desire to communicate it's a passion for truth and yeah i would really honestly say i just it makes me emotional um i just wanted to help people really and i thought that ministry was the best way to do it um i did i get it man uh, and I, you know, we do have common ground here because uh, that's exactly what drove me to do decades of the work that I did was it was yeah. all about helping people. It was all about, you know, at the end of the day, it was the sort of saving the world mantra. But the but the only reason that anchored into me as strongly as it did is because I just want to help. Right. And it's just amazing how hard that can be sometimes. And and yeah. how many roadblocks it seems even the people you're trying to help will put in your way trying to do it. It can be deflating, you know, it can be fatiguing. Um, but at the end of the day, you always return to it because it's also the most inspiring, beautiful, and wonderful thing in your life. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that was that was one thing that wherever I went in church, there were there were some people, you know, where they felt that their lives had been changed. And they would stay in touch with you when you moved away. Um, and, and I, my, my best friend is still a member of the last church I pastored. And somehow, I mean, he still believes it all. And we just figured out how to be friends anyway. 
and you know we're real honest with each other but he's the exception right um, and i had there was one guy that i i baptized him in new jersey and he was really a sharp guy and he worked for a big corporation and moved all over the country through his career every thanksgiving he would call me and he would say tim thank you for the contribution you made to my life Oh, wow. Uh, this Thanksgiving, he contacted me on Facebook Messenger. And he said, you've gone down a dark path. And it's time for me to end my relationship with you. Today, I want friendships that are not conditional like that. And I think they exist and they are possible. And they're possible even with Christians. Like I told you, my best friend. Uh, I've met, I've met, we have a secular community here in Houston. I've met some great people there, really sharp people. Um, I've met some people actually through Twitter, um, like, you know, get, like we're getting acquainted today and mm -hmm. uh, other friends, other writers. And, uh, and when I see people say, uh, ask the question, hear them ask the question or read it. How can you have any values if you don't believe in God? And when you're living in the secular life, that sounds like the stupidest question in the world. Yes, it does. Because you're seeing, you, you, you know these other people, they, they care. Right. And uh, I was listening to Christopher Hitchens. I used to hate Christopher Hitchens. Didn't hate him, but I disliked him intensely. Wasn't allowed to hate anybody. Right. But, um, and now I frequently listen to him on YouTube while I'm falling asleep. And he said the other day, do you really think that it's, it's religion that gives a human the impulse when a child is walking out in the street and a car is coming, that gives them the impulse to run out there and pull the child out of the way of the car? Do you really think you need to go to the mosque or the church or the cathedral to learn that? And I think he's right. I think as humans, we evolved being... Um, having a concern for other people. We're not lions. We're not tigers. Put us alone out in the jungle, we'll die. Yep. But we have brains, and we can use those brains to figure out, hey, we can work together. We can make tools. We can make uh, things that protect us. We need each other. And, you know, the coronavirus has prompted the saying over and over, we're in this together. And that's true. We are in this together. So... There's a common humanity. There's a way to connect. And I hope in the coming years that secular people find ways. I think a lot of what churches do and groups like uh, Scientology, any group like this, they, they provide community. That's right. They make people feel a part of something. They make people feel like they're not alone. That's not necessarily a religious issue. That's a human issue. And I think the secular world, at least as I know it, has not yet quite figured out how to do that. Maybe as well, the church has had decades, centuries to hone their skills. Um, I hope that in the coming years, secular communities learn to do that in a different way, but as well or better than the churches do it. And if it's unconditional, if it's not like, well, you don't believe gays are evil anymore, or you don't, you're not a Baptist anymore, then bye. No, it's just, you know, we're humans. We disagree, but I'm your friend. Exactly. Exactly.
I, I couldn't agree more. And I think needing to figure out what, you know, how we can do that is a crucial question in the secular agree. community these days. Crucial. And it's not getting enough attention. Um, and there's a number of reasons for that. It has not, I'm, not, I'm not making a value statement there or a moral statement there. It's just a fact. We, we need to figure that out. Um, Okay, I have a couple of questions for you about what happened to you over the years and some ideas about that. I found a press release from 1992 uh, when you first announced you'd be setting up these, these uh, support groups. Mm -hmm. And you'd signed up enough people on the first day to fill up six groups, as you mentioned. And I got the idea from what you said that alcoholism may be an even bigger problem than we realize among the evangelical community. Uh, I don't know if that was the basis for the support groups. You had people who were hurting for all kinds of reasons, but I wonder, do you it, do you want to speak to that at all as far as what might be going on under the well, surface there? Yeah, I can I can share some thoughts. Um, alcoholism often skips a generation. Hmm. So a kid has an alcoholic parent and from what I've read about half the time, they may go the same way or they may say, whatever, and this is what I did, whatever I do, I'm not gonna be like my dad. Mm -hmm. um, and then many times, and there's, you know, I don't know if anybody knows for sure yet, but there's a, maybe there's a genetic component. Mm -hmm. um, and you have the next generation where they didn't see it up close and they had that genetic component. So then it comes back and it can just, you know, leapfrog from one generation to the other. What we were dealing with was mainly people who had grown up. And, and, and one of the things that happened real fast, it wasn't just alcoholic families. It was um, growing up with somebody who was a drug addict or even a work addict or religion addict or abusive. Um, it created the same dynamic. So it was really about dysfunctional families. Mm -hmm. um, no family's perfect, but there are some guidelines for what's functional. And one of the one of the rules of a dysfunctional family is they discourage open talk about secrets. Right. Don't talk about the secrets. Right. Um, so we identified some of those, and we and we started trying to create an environment for a few hours on a Thursday night or a Sunday morning, or we had retreats and. Retreats were really cool. We'd go out to a, like a kind of a farm retreat center near Houston. And for three days, we'd create an environment that felt like a big, extended, functional family. And uh, that was really meaningful to people because there, there's such a hunger for that. So it wasn't, I don't know that there's any more of anything in the church, whether it's alcoholism or any other vice or personal problem. But I do know, as we were talking about earlier, the rule is keep it quiet. Right. Don't make us look bad. And right. so what that does, it creates another level to, to the problem, which is you have the problem, but you can't talk about it. And so you're suffering in silence. Exactly. And that, of course, only exacerbates the problem, continues the problem, right. and prevents actually, again, this business of you want to help people, but they sometimes put roadblocks in your way this enforced silence, and it's a group think kind of thing. It's not any one individual doing it. It's a social pressure. 
And mm-hmm. that is way, you know, you'd wish it was only one or two bad apples doing that. But when it's a social pressure, it is a hundred times harder to overcome. Right. So, yeah, that's a rough one. And then also I uh, noted in your, I, I just wanted to ask you about this. I'm not, I, I'm not asking these questions because I'm trying to uh, tarnish or paint believers in, in this black brush. That's not my intent. I, I, you know, they're just humans. They're just people. And mm-hmm. they're just another group of folks. But, um, but there is this facade and it, and it does rub, you know, a little the wrong way when you come out of groups like that and then realize it's a false front, false facade, mm-hmm. right? So sometimes re-examining some of our old ideas and statements is useful. And I wanted to ask you about this one because you also mentioned you had a six-point breakdown on the um, principles about dysfunctional families. Mm-hmm. And you said at the last one, God is the ultimate source of healing on the journey. And I imagine at this point, that view has changed. The other points you had seem Seem pretty spot on, but I was kind of curious about what your view on that one is now. <laughs> well, since I don't think there's anybody there, um, <laughs> I don't ascribe to that anymore. You know, my view is uh, I, I really, and a lot of times Christians will say, well, then how did we get here? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, but I'm sorry, that's not a requirement. You can say, I don't know. <laughs> you can reject one belief because it's inadequate for a hundred reasons without being able to say, well, now I really know how the, how the universe, I mean, there was a big bang theory, but there's still a lot of unanswered questions. Um, but what's interesting is that Christians, they just say, well, God created it. Okay, well, but how did God get here? Well, he was always here. So it's just another level of a simple uh, answer. But, you know, there, there might be an, a, a, a super intelligent, super powerful being who put all this into, into process, I don't know. But I do know this. There is not an all-powerful, all-knowing, personal, loving God. Mm-hmm. There's just not. If there is, he skipped earth. Exactly. Because if you're an all-powerful, all-knowing, loving, personal God, you don't send your message to a little corner of the Mediterranean in an obscure place where most of the people don't read or write and make a few resurrection appearances for 40 days and don't have and you don't have anybody that writes it down for years and years for decades and then you don't leave any copies of the originals come on exactly <laughs> and I, somebody had a tweet this week and said i can prove the resurrection using evidence that would be accepted in a court of law and i didn't answer them but here's my response Mm. the claim that God came to the earth and died and rose again requires more evidence than what would pass the test of a court of law. It has its own standard. Mm. It needs to be clear, available to everybody. It doesn't, you shouldn't have to have Wycliffe Bible translators translating the message into all these languages and going to all these people. And and then when they've done all that work, you have thousands of denominations. I'll tell you, a lot of Christians dislike other groups of Christians as much as they dislike us secular people, maybe more, because they don't see baptism right, or they think you can lose your salvation, or they think you can't lose your salvation, or whatever. It goes on and on. And I'll tell you one thing that I am like relieved 
that I'm not carrying on my shoulders anymore is how could God let that happen? Um, why does the Bible say this? And, it's, and when is Jesus come? Why isn't Jesus? I mean, all these questions and you sort of took a deep breath and tried to come up with an answer. No, it's not a, the Bible is not a unified. We used to say the Bible has a scarlet thread running through it, unifying every book. No, it doesn't. It was written by a lot of people over hundreds and hundreds of years, and it doesn't all fit together. The God of the Old Testament is angry, um, narcissistic, vengeful. God of New Testament is quite a bit better, more loving, but you still you still have hell. Um, so it's a lot easier to figure it all out. All the awfulness of and and all the awfulness of Revelation. Oh my God. You know, all that stuff that's supposed to happen at the end. Jesus. <laughs> it's yeah, a, and figuring uh, out what does that yeah. mean? That that's a toss-up right there. Oh man. I and I know it can be read lots and lots of ways. I'm yeah. I am the exact opposite of the biblical scholar. I, I really am, but I just some of the imagery is impressive, some of the language is impressive, and then the rest of it's just kind of for the birds in so many ways. But uh, interesting stuff. I did actually have, uh, uh, there's, there's this theological question I've had, something I've been struggling with as a, as a secular person who is not well read or deeply involved in, you know, theology. I, I'm just not. And I haven't had the time to, to, de- to get past all the begats and begats and begats. Um, I tried a couple times and I just couldn't do it. Dante's Inferno and similar works through history have heavily influenced religious thinking and ideas, right? I mean, his concepts of hell and heaven and what that's all about, it's, it's quite impressive and, and very, very detailed. Um, did you, you know, when you were getting your education and looking at, okay, we have this thing called the Bible, all these very, very old transcripts or, or, you know, these old manuscripts and, and some of them are, we've only got half the manuscripts, et cetera, et cetera. You got that as a base on which this stuff is built, but how do, how do they incorporate all the writings that come through all the dark ages, middle ages, through enlightenment? What, how does all that fit into this picture? It depends on your branch of Christianity. If you're an evangelical Christian, it's the scripture only and Baptist hold this oh. view. It's all about the scripture. So it doesn't really matter what Dante wrote or anybody else. Yeah. It's uh, what did the scripture say? And what we want to do is, and I'm going to go, I'm talking like a minister now. So what sure, we want sure. to do is um, we want to understand the historical context. We want to understand the Greek language. And we want to do the best we can to understand what it meant to the original readers or hearers. And then we want to go to the next step and we want to, we want to interpret how what that means to us and uh and then and then we wanted to apply it so what does that mean for how i live this week so that that's the emphasis in evangelical churches now but even evangelical churches have gotten off track in the last few decades and i really don't understand them anymore because they're they have aligned themselves with a political viewpoint that it's hard to connect it with any of the teachings of Jesus as I understood them. So I don't, I don't get that. I think the Catholic Church, the, the, and I'm not an expert on Catholicism, but the Catholic Church is, the, in the evangelical churches, it's the Bible. In the Catholic Church, it's the Bible, the church councils. Cardinals and church leaders get together, 
they like uh, when I was what was it back in the '60s? There was the big Vatican Council that changed so many things. Yeah, Vatican II. Um, yeah, and and then the pronouncements of the Pope. Yep. So they would be more affected by a Saint Augustine who writes, and then maybe his writings impact what happens at the next council. Um, and and they will they will argue that they're better because the Bible does have limitations, and so they're constantly sort of updating and getting new words from God. Whereas evangelicals say, we've got the word of God. It's all there. You just have to understand it. Okay. And what would you say? I've done podcasts with a, um, also a former minister, uh, evangelical minister, Clint Haycock. He's over in the UK. And yeah, I know Clint. We've uh, gotten acquainted. I did an interview podcast with him just a few weeks ago. He's a, he's a neat guy. He is. I, I've I've very much enjoyed our talks, and we, of course, he and I are both on the same page in terms of a uh, concern, a heavy, heavy concern about uh, overreaching dominionism and you know these evangelical uh, mm -hmm. sort of unions with politics that we're seeing. And what we see in like the documentaries, like the family, Jeff Charlotte's work, and oh what, yeah, oh my gosh, right? That Clint was powerful. Have, yeah, very much so. And Clint and I have sort of agreed and talked about this. I wanted to get your view on it from your position as a former evangelical minister, because you mentioned just now it's hard to reconcile the belief system with what they're doing. And it appears from what we're seeing that the reconciliation there is it revolves around King David or the story of, you know, you have an immoral character who is yet acting as God's guy in mm -hmm. these situations. And therefore, you can sort of rationalize almost anything against that backdrop of King David. What, what's your take on that? Yeah, they also, um, they compare Donald Trump to uh, King Cyrus of Persia, who though he didn't believe as they did, was benevolent toward the Jewish people. Mm. So for me as a Southern Baptist, during the last years that I was a pastor, a group of fundamentalists, and yes, Southern Baptists were always very conservative, but these were super far right people started saying, saying our seminaries are too liberal, we need to clean them up. And so they started to take over and it took more than a decade because everybody on your seminary boards and all the different foreign mission board and all that, they'd serve staggered three-year terms. So if you if you elected a fundamentalist president of the denomination and he picked a third of the people for those boards, that it was just a third. It would take three more years to replace them and three more years and then you try, hopefully you had a board that would fire the president. And this, this went on and on. Well, I went to Wheaton College, which is very conservative. It's kind of the intellectual conservative uh, school for evangelical Christians. And I was extremely conservative theologically. And at, at first I thought, well, I'm one of these guys. But as, as, as the controversy unfolded, I found that they lied. They were mean. They were just, they wanted power. Mm -hmm. and they weren't the smartest people in the group either. So, you know, I, I went a different way. And here was the interesting thing. I'll tell you a little story that's, that's kind of almost, it's like a, oh, I can't think of the word right now, but it's sort of a, a hint of what larger things to come. I was on the board of a, a Baptist university here in Houston with a friend and we were considered moderates or liberals theologically, which is kind of funny because we were super conservative, but the fundamentalists thought we were in the liberal camp. And so during one of the meetings, the president of the university said, well, we've received a donation of some land 
and it has a TV tower on it. And we're going to get some money until we sell the land because that TV tower generates income from cable TV channels that, that somehow send their signals from one place to the other to get into the next cable system. And so I raised my hand. I said, I have a question. Do any of these cable channels transmit pornography? And the president said, well, I understand. I'm a Baptist minister. This is the president is also a Baptist committed best. Well, I don't know. I don't know. There were two mega churches in our city that were their pastors were leaders in this takeover movement. They were the super fundamentalists. They were one of them was there. He would he had fallen asleep. We just had lunch and he was taking a nap. Well, what happened was that people, laymen from those two churches started coming after me. And they were saying things like, well, there's bad stuff on all TV channels, on network. Why are you, we shouldn't be worried about. And it wasn't what, it wasn't the, what we were talking about. It was the surrealistic situation of these guys are supposed to be the fundamentalists, but when it gets right down to it, they don't care if they're making money off pornography. It's the we liberals on the left that, that are they're asking those questions. And then the pastor of one of the churches woke up from his nap and he saw that his guys were arguing against me and my liberal friend and he took their side. But after a few minutes, he realized what we were talking about. And after the meeting was over, he took my friend and I out to, out to uh, for coffee <laughs> to clean up because so he wanted to be sure that nobody ever learned that he was arguing on that side of the thing. Well, the relevance of that story to me is the odd thing about these people is they're like in for righteousness and we don't want anybody doing this or that that's bad. But I guess it's the end justifies the means. That's what I saw there and I see it today. You know, our, our country's locking up immigrant children in cages and there's all this concern, no abortion, no abortion. I, I get it, it's a debate, but they're not really pro-life, they're pro-birth. They don't care that how many people are dying in the pandemic or right. yeah let's have a war and let's send the poor guys who get you know who don't have anything else to do but sign up they'll go fight for us they'll die we don't care or if that guy if that woman doesn't abort our baby and she's a crack addict and he grows up to be a crack addict he shoots somebody and kills him we'll we'll electrocute him or or gas him or or inject him we don't they're not pro-life for some reason and, and I guess it's that their leaders have singled out abortion as like a signature issue. So that matters. But other issues just as pressing, if not more so, about living and the right to be alive are ignored. In fact, they take the other position. So it, it's not unlike uh, the Muslim, the concept of Sharia law. It's like, I guess, if you believe wholeheartedly that your religion is truth and you have words from God, it's a pretty easy step to say, and everybody ought to be living by those rules, whether they want to or not, unless, and this is one thing we had as Baptists, Baptists played some role in the United States, in the history of the United States, in advocating separation of church and state because they were afraid of being in the minority and they wanted it so that anybody could be free to believe, which I think is a good thing. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm not fighting for churches to go away or I, I just want to tell my story and my truth, which I think is the truth in terms of there's, it's evidence-based truth. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not against the churches. I don't want them to go away. But if they start trying to tell everybody else what to do, 
that's another matter. Exactly. And I, yeah, I'm not as up on it as, as you and Clint are, but I, I am up on it enough to know that it is frightening. And I just I just like to think that these people are soon going to fall out of any semblance of power. I hope that's true. I do too. And I I think the way things are going, I'm hoping, you know, I'm loath to do predictions, but I'm hoping that um that come November we're gonna see a real sea change uh and power shift. And that I, hope so. I think that will kind of cut some of this stuff off at the knees. Unfortunately, if it goes the other way, it will only bolster and reinforce it. And then we're really going to have a hard time coming back from this. Yeah, I don't even like to think about that. I really don't. (laughs) You and me both. That's why I'm Mr. Optimist. No, we're going to do the right thing on uh, for everybody here. And we're going to finally come out of our, you know, brief uh, manic hysteria and and, and get back to actual the business of being um, the United States again. Yeah. Because uh, whatever the hell's been going on the last four years, it ha- it's it's been just this lunatic dream. Um, okay, well, listen, thank you very much for coming around and and helping me out with all this. I imagine I might have about a ton, ten billion more questions for you at some point uh, because I'm I'll probably be doing some some more you know religious Christian evangelical based or yeah. themed content in the future. Yeah, I'd like to good. Up to you. I I did want to mention one thing. Um, yeah. The book, A Metaspiritual Handbook, after I'd had it out for about a year, I started getting, started kind of reading the audience out there, and I found that about half the people I was dealing with on Twitter and social media didn't want anything to do with anything that had the word spiritual in it. Yep. So I rewrote the book under the title, How to Live a Meaningful Life, Focusing on Things That Matter. It's the (laughs) same content. And I actually still believe everything that you read at the beginning. In fact, you're reading it made me think, you know what? Maybe I ought to put that back on the market and just sell both of them. Because I still like that. I think a lot of people are interested in spirituality, but not, as you read my words earlier, not in the sense of magic or deity or anything, but just, you know, thinking about higher things and uh, trying to go for the highest and best in life. But I just want to mention that so that it's, it's still available on an audible tape but not in book form. Awesome. Uh, thanks for clarifying that because I did not catch that in my research. I, I will also um, make a little recommendation to you if you haven't done so already to reach out to Sam Harris. Okay. Because he is pushing a, using the word spirituality, pushing that message forward. Yes, I know. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's one of my favorite people and uh, got to, he came to Houston about a year ago, packed out this huge uh, auditorium and he and the guy that was with him, I think they talked for four hours. Wow. And it was incredible. I mean, it was just awesome. Yeah, he's 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 a brilliant speaker. Um, I, you know, I, like everyone, I, I don't agree with everything the guy says, but he he has a way with words and his calm, rational manner of speaking is yeah. something I find enviable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm still holding on to free will. That's that's the one I, yeah. I where I haven't I haven't read his book on uh, free on what I don't forget what it's called, but I was just called free will. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I haven't read that. I know. I got. I have an idea of what it says, and I haven't read it yet. <laughs> yeah. It's. Uh. It's not a bad book. It definitely got me thinking. I did a whole podcast on it actually, and I have. I've. I. I backed off a little bit on the on the position of there's no free will because what I realized is it really depends on what level you're looking at it from. Yeah. You know, you can look at it on a neurological level and go, "Well, is there free will?" Well, I don't know. Can I individually adjust the neurons in my head? Well, no, I can't. 
So there's no free will. Well, hang on. <laughs> did I decide to go to college or did somebody else decide yeah. that? I decided that. So, you know, so it really depends on what level you're looking at. Yeah, it's a complex issue, I think. Very much so. Very much so. Um, do you have any, because I, I don't know, do you have any future projects or things that you want to let people know about before we wrap up here? Uh, well, I've, I've got a couple of books in my head or that I've started working on. One, uh, the thing I'm working on now, two things. I'm finishing up the uh, audible book version of Goodbye Jesus. And um, I'll throw a little teaser in. Um, my company that I started to uh, publish my own books, I'm publishing another writer's book and finishing that up right now. And that's all I'll say right now, but I think that's going to be pretty exciting. Awesome. Awesome. Looking forward. All right. Well, again, thank you very much for being part of this, folks. If you want to find Tim, you can find him again at timsledge.com. Not, not hard to get him found on the internet. Reach out to him if you want to have any questions for him or anything like that. And um, again, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you, Chris. My pleasure. Absolutely. And I'm going to now put a little plug in out here for myself and my channel, guys, because I'm facing a little bit of a situation. This uh, COVID-19 thing um, has had ripple effects across the uh, internet. And one of those effects is that the ad revenue from YouTube is crashing. And I mean crashing hard. And the only reason why I'm bringing that up is because um, the thing that keeps the show going and the lights on and all of that it's pretty much you guys. So I wanted to kind of throw out there that if you're enjoying my content, enjoying what I'm what I'm putting out here and getting something from it, please consider supporting me through Patreon um, because that is the primary way that I am keeping these lights on and this show going. And um, and I want to keep producing content that you guys are interested in. So please do give me your feedback. Good, bad, or sideways, I'm down. I just don't want to be insulted in the process as I am, you know, like to say about that. So, um, so leave your comments on this at sensiblyspeaking.com or in the YouTube comments. And I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.